Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. Today's a good day. A jury stood witness to what Rudy Giuliani did to me and my daughter and held him accountable. And for that, I'm thankful. A lot less money for hair dye. A D.C. jury ordered Rudy Giuliani to pay through the Trump brown nose for defaming mother and daughter election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. I'll tell you what nine-figure sum he owes them in just a minute. Also tonight, highly classified documents go missing. Can you guess who took them? I'll bet you can. But I'll give you the big reveal in a bit. Plus, I have a very special guest tonight. Tariq Blackthought Trotter of The Roots joins me to talk about his incredible new memoir. But we begin tonight with the breaking news late today out of a Washington, D.C. courtroom where a federal jury has returned its decision on the punishment Rudy Giuliani will face for defaming two Georgia election workers following the 2020 presidential election. The eight-person jury unanimously ordered Giuliani to pay more than $148 million in damages to Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss. The verdict followed a four-day trial during which the mother and daughter provided dramatic testimony on how their lives have been forever damaged by Giuliani's repeated false claims that they committed election fraud, opening them up to a torrent of racist and violent threats. Outside the court, both both said that they were thankful for the jury's verdict, but that it, it can never undo the damage that was done. That Giuliani lit with those lies and passed to so many others to keep that flame blazing changed every aspect of our lives, our homes, our family, our work, our sense of safety, our mental health. And we're still working to rebuild. Money will never solve all of my problems. I can never move back into the house that I called home. I will always have to be careful about where I go and who I choose to share my name with. I miss my home. I miss my neighbors. And I miss my name. Also speaking to reporters after the decision was Rudy Giuliani, who struck a defiant tone and vowed that the verdict will ultimately be reversed. And as he did earlier in the week, he continued to push the very lies that brought him to court in the first place, claiming he could prove that his big lie conspiracy theory was true all along. I have no doubt that my comments were made and they were supportable and are supportable today. I just did not have an opportunity to present the evidence that we offered, did you notice we were not allowed to put in one piece of evidence in defense? Do you also realize that liability is not based on any trial? Liability is based on her disagreement with me on discovery, which so is, a, which is absurd. Joining me now is Von DuBose, attorney for plaintiffs Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. You just heard uh, Rudy Giuliani um, what do you make of that? Because as I was listening to him talk, I wrote down the name E. Jean Carroll, who won a defamation suit against Donald Trump. Then he went out and defamed her again, and she is suing him again. 
When you hear Rudy Giuliani continuing to defame your clients and claim that what he claimed about them was true, do you feel like maybe litigating this a second time? Sure. Uh, his comments are unfortunate, but not surprising. Um, we are committed to litigate this as much as we need to litigate the, these issues to ensure that Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss uh, as, get as close as possible back to their previous lives. There's nothing that's going to restore them fully, but we're, we're committed to this fight. Um, well, that, you didn't say you're not going to sue them again, but let me let me just put the, the award that they got uh, on just a scale for, for our audience to understand. Um, the Ruby Freeman defamation case, uh, $16,171,000 for Ruby Freeman, $16,998,000 for Shane Moss for defamation, another $20 million to Ruby Freeman for emotional distress, another $20 million for Shane Moss on emotional distress, $75 million for both on punitive damages. So that's the $148.169 uh, million. <clears throat> My question is, how are you going to collect? At this moment, Rudy Giuliani owes $500,000 in unpaid taxes. The IRS has a lien on his Palm Beach property. He's selling his Upper East Side apartment. It's on the books for it's on the it's on the market for six million dollars, but it hasn't been sold yet. And his consulting firm defaulted on a debt for a phone bill. How are you going to collect? Sure, uh, we've already put the pieces in motion for that. Uh, we are intending to collect every nickel of it. We'll see how much we ultimately find and how much we ultimately recover. But we are putting the pieces in place right now. If you remember one thing I say today. Oh, I'm sorry. Some sound no. played. Go ahead. Keep going. Yes, we are putting those pieces in play right now. We were putting them in play prior to the verdict. So we intend to pursue this verdict. Can just to, to, for, to uh, sort of make our help our audience understand how this works. Can these ladies put a lien on his properties? Would his tax returns be taken? Like, pragmatically, how could you make him pay? Every enforcement measure at our fingertips will be, will be put in play, uh, quite simply. And so we'll look at liens, we'll look at garnishments, we'll look at levies, we'll look at everything. We'll look at everything, absolutely. Uh, the most important question, how are these ladies feeling? Uh, they've been through hell, obviously. We've played some of the voicemails. Uh, so we've read through some of the messages they've gotten, the death threats. How are they feeling sure. uh, this evening? They, they feel good today. They feel good today. Uh, this is one small step in their journey. There's more work to be done. Uh, this week, in fact, was hell at trial. Uh, it was very difficult to get on that stand and to... Uh, talk about what happened to them. And we're very appreciative of the jury that they recognized, understood, and spoke on what happened to Ruby and Shay. I, I must ask you, um, you know, despite this very big, very important win, and, and I must add, mm -hmm. they were very brave. They testified before Congress. They were willing to come mm -hmm. through, come forward and tell their story. So uh, kudos to them for just being great, uh, you know, members of the civic community. But sure. Rudy Giuliani didn't do this for himself. He did it for a guy named Donald Trump. Uh, right. The originator of the big lie is Donald Trump. I'm sure that these ladies are exhausted by having to deal with a court case in which they had to, you know, relive their traumas. But has sure. there been any consideration that maybe the next lawsuit should be against Donald Trump? All options are on the table for us. Uh, we're continue, continuing to monitor this situation. As you know, it's an evolving situation. So there are a number of things we're considering. So uh, there hasn't been a decision made on that as of yet, but we are looking at all options. Yeah. And, and the, the, I guess the 
the sort of obvious question is, I mean, beyond that, there are lots of people in the state of Georgia who are now mm -hmm. facing a criminal case, uh, a sure. RICO case, meaning that it was not just a couple of people who were attacking Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. There was a band of people, a band of 19 people. And when they think about some of those people, some of whom were African-American, who were harassing sure. them directly, do they feel that they ought to also have to pay a civic price for that? Sure. Uh, anyone who was involved in this, I think, could theoretically be held accountable for it. Um, there are a lot of factors that go into selecting the lawsuits that you actually br uh, bring, when you bring those lawsuits, how you bring those lawsuits, where you bring those lawsuits. So this was the first step in a long journey. Well, please pass along from the readout audience uh, our congratulations to your clients, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. We around here consider them to be heroes. Um, they defended democracy. They didn't commit crimes for Donald Trump. They told the truth. Uh, and they also help people vote, which is actually my favorite thing that they do. People who help folks vote and who are working uh, at, the, at that level. They don't get a lot of money for it, but they definitely deserve great praise. So please pass that along to them. I certainly will do that. Thank you, Joy. Thank you so much, Von DuBose. Now let's bring in Basil right. Smichael, Jr., Democratic strategist and director of the public policy program at Hunter College, and Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst. Thank you both for being here. And I think you both know, know, know Rudy Giuliani. I know you do, my sister. Let me play for you, because you know what? He's somebody who's like Trump, cannot shut up. Lauren Windsor, um, who is an independent journalist who often gets uh, people to say really dumb things just by asking them a very simple question, she caught up with Rudy Giuliani um, after this verdict. And she asked him why he was willing to risk it all for Donald Trump. Here is what he said. You're America's Listen, mayor. Why man. are you willing to risk it all for uh, Donald Trump? I'm a man of principle. I've always been a man of principle. Uh, this is a fight of principle. I, I understand that I could have done a lot of things to make this go away. The reason I didn't make it go away is for the American people. The election of 2020 has to be exposed because if not, our country will no longer be a democracy. I know that. I know that in detail. I have the evidence in my, I'm not just talking about this case, I'm talking about a lot of cases. And I know that my country had a president imposed on it by fraud. What is wrong with this person? <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, genuinely. Genuinely, I think he has gone through some kind of mental derangement. And, and, and I'm serious, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't sure. diagnose him. But this is not the Rudy Giuliani who ran New York City for eight years. This is not someone who ran a consulting firm. This is someone who has literally cut himself off from reality. He has been brought in as part, in part of the uh, Trump cult. But the saddest part of it all is from 2016 to today, I think he sees this as the way of staying relevant. Except now I actually think he believes it all too, which is worse. But he is someone who likes the limelight, who wants it. He, the, the, the lawsuit, maybe he thinks he'll get away with something. He'll get something from Trump at the end of the day. If Trump wins, he'll, he'll get out of the legal binds. But at the end of the day, I think he's happy to see himself in the media every day, which that, is really sad and really pathetic for what, for someone who was once a great mayor. I don't know that he was a great mayor. Know, we can, we can debate about that. Disagree. We can debate about that. A well-regarded mayor. By, by, by some, yes. Okay. Some people really thought he was a good mayor. But I mean, this is a man who is a former U.S. attorney mm -hmm. who could very well be in prison right. 
in Georgia and broke very soon. Do you think that he is pretend? Does he appear to you to be pretending to believe still that this election was stolen? That is he performing for Trump to try to become his attorney general from what is he doing? I agree with uh, with Susan in in one regard that I think he is. He is searching for the limelight. He is searching for a path to some platform, and he found that through Donald Trump. What does he want? A podcast? I, I don't know what he wants. He but has I will a tell radio you, show, and those, that money's going to be garnished. You, but I will tell you, he says he's a man of principle to me, and I know you may disagree with this. He's always been this guy. I agree. He is the person that led a riot in front of City Hall when a black man was sitting as mayor, um, where there were off-duty police officers and others lighting fires in trash cans and holding up signs saying, go back to being a washroom attendant. He has always been this person. It's the yeah. it's, it, What he has not had since he was, quote, America's mayor mm-hmm. is, as I said before, this path to having a platform. Yeah. And he found that in Donald Trump. They are like-minded individuals. Yep. And every time... Folks would say this was the big lie. I always said it was a big conspiracy because there's no way that one man could have unleashed all of this unless there were individuals willing to help him. Rudy Giuliani, top of that list. So uh, agreeing with what you had said before, uh, Ms. uh, Moss and Ms. Freeman are are heroes because because the courage that it took to defend democracy in front of that onslaught led by Donald Trump and seconded by Rudy Giuliani— um, is no, nothing short of courageous and heroic. No, absolutely. And by the way, they had the courage to testify publicly mm-hmm. when members of Congress didn't have the cojones to do the same. That's right. And they they are heroes. And I they deserve everything they got. But I just want to bring it out a little bit more. This is so important for our overall democracy. Yes. This award, it's not just the money. It shows that if you have this kind of behavior, you will be held accountable. Because yep. what did we all worry about in 2022 and still worry about today in 20, for 2024? Violence at um, polling booths. Mm-hmm. And these are the frontline workers. We've all worked. I've, yeah, I'm sure sorry. you have, too. I know you have. We've been into poll watch. We've been poll watchers. We see what these folks do. They're there for 12, 16 hours a day. Yeah. They literally are on the front lines and they did it in a pandemic yes. those two women that we, is absolutely... we have to remember that let, let me play them for let, let's let you listen to uh ruby freeman and she's saying don't be sad for me listen to this don't be sad for me don't waste your time being angry at those who did this to me and my daughter we are more than conquerors Pray for us as we continue to fight the good fight of faith. I tell my attorneys often, my friends say that God knew who to give this assignment to because if it had been them, they wouldn't have been able to go through this. Amen to that. Uh, And by the way, she also said faith carried them through. Faith carried us through this most difficult time of my life. Faith will carry you through the hardships that you face in life. Understand that the devil is a liar. He is defeated and no weapon formed against you shall prosper. They are still women of faith even after all this. But my final comment here. At some point, do people start to count the cost of the big lie? As of today, Rudy Giuliani, $148 million. Fox, $787.5 million to resolve the defamation suit by Dominion. They still are facing Smartmatic. This now is closing in on the Alex Jones $1.49 billion bill. The big lie has cost so much. 
At some point, and I'll let each of you answer this question, but I'm going to start with you, my dear. I'll just At be some brief. point, do people say it's, it's costing too much? It w- no. Honestly, the people that we need to say it, it costs too much, no, because Donald Trump doesn't care because he's going to have his campaign yeah. pay for it. But what it does do, those big numbers, it shows that you will be held accountable. So I hope it costs twice, three times, a hundred times yeah. as much. And people are put in jail for crimes. Because that is the message that needs to be sent. And, Last word. and it's possible that some of the Republican leadership looking for someone other than Donald Trump are starting to see this cost yeah. in many different ways, financially and politically. And I just want to hone in on something that Ms. Freeman said. She is she is going to miss her name. That yes. hit me yeah. because these are women that essentially have to go into witness protection That's because right. of what happened. Yeah. And I, my fear is that the chilling effect of that is going to slow down our process yeah. and, and bring down our institutions. But God bless her as a woman of faith, and that's actually something that we should all yes. be, be be amplifying right now. I, I will note that one of the complete fools uh, who joined Donald Trump's little gang in Georgia seemed to continue to threaten them. So they are not out of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, out of duress and out of danger. So God bless these women. Uh, and I hope that they uh, get every dime, Rudy, <laughs> pay, pay up. Basil Smichael Jr. and Susan Del Percio, thank you. And up next on The Readout, stunning new reporting on a binder filled with highly classified intelligence about Russian efforts to interfere in U.S. elections that mysteriously vanished in the final days of the Trump administration. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. New reporting today suggests that some of our nation's top secret intelligence may be MIA. One U.S. official tells NBC News the Senate Intelligence Committee was briefed two years ago that a binder containing highly classified raw intelligence related to Russian election interference had gone missing in the waning days of the Trump administration. The story was first reported by CNN, which adds that in the two plus years since Trump left office, the missing intelligence does not appear to have been found. CNN reports this 10-inch thick binder was last seen at the White House during Trump's final days in office as part of a last-minute attempt to declassify some of these documents to try to prove that the FBI's Russia investigation was all a hoax. Republican aides reportedly scoured the material in the hours leading up to Joe Biden's inauguration, attempting to redact as much classified information as possible so it could be released to the public, which never happened. Instead, Copies with varying levels of redactions wound up at the National Archives, while the original unredacted version went missing. Where it went or who might have it remains a mystery. But there is one theory. 
Cassidy Hutchinson, who was at the time a top aide to then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified to Congress and wrote in her memoir that Meadows had kept the unredacted version of the binder in his safe and that she thought she saw him leave the White House with it, which Meadows' lawyer denies. But even so, what this reporting describes is yet another example from the Trump White House where some of our nation's highly classified security secrets were handled with such little care. Joining me now is Javed Ali, former senior official at the FBI and senior director at the National Security Council. Thank you for being here, um, Javed. It, it, is, it is a whodunit, but if Cassidy Hutchinson, who was the most credible witness uh, and the star witness in January 6th, says that she saw uh, Mark Meadows with it, he denies it. But she also wrote that in her book, which I'm assuming means she's committed to that fact. If you're a prosecutor and you've already got Mark Meadows looking at charges in Georgia, isn't he the first stop that you take uh, to knock on his door to say, do you have anything to do with this? Well, Joy, nice to be with you again. And just when you thought this classified document story couldn't get any wackier and crazier, now we have the reporting from CNN and then additional reporting from the New York Times today that putting a different uh, perspective on on this this latest chapter. So when it comes to to Mark Meadows and did did he truly have the uh, hard copy set that had the 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 raw intelligence reporting that everyone was looking for? If he was holding on to that and didn't turn it over, yes, there's probably some potential criminal liability there. But there's so there's so many questions to unpack to get to the bottom of this story. Why was this binder being shared by lots of people in the White House anyways? And probably a lot of them didn't even have the security clearance to look at the original material. They apparently were trying to unilaterally declassify very sensitive intelligence in the final days of the administration and then somehow get that publicly declassified. That is absolutely not the way the declassic- uh, declassification process works. Uh, President Trump apparently thought that the contents of the binder would somehow exonerate part of his story about Russia, Russia's interference or influence on the 2016 uh, election, on and on and on. So, I mean, it's such a crazy story, and there's so many different angles to look at, right? Right. And Mark Meadows, you know, and again, he does deny that he took this binder, but he wouldn't have taken it for himself. He would have taken it for this guy. Here is Donald Trump, who is obsessed with the fact that he was impeached for the, you know, the, well, the first time for trying to strong arm Ukraine, but that the FBI credibly found that he did take Russian help in order to get elected president. Take a listen. I call it the Russian hoax. One of the great hoaxes. It's a Democrat hoax that was brought up as an excuse for losing an election. Now we're being hindered by the Russian hoax. It's a hoax, okay? They're investigating something that never happened. Uh, There was no collusion between us and Russia. Let's read from the so-called Russia hoax. This is a quote from the Mueller report on Russia's election interference. The special counsel's investigation established that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election, principally through two operations. First, a Russian entity carried out a social media campaign that favored presidential candidate Donald J. Trump and disparaged presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Second, a Russian intelligence service conducted computer intrusion operations against entities, sorry, comma, 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 
employees and volunteers working on the Clinton campaign and then released stolen documents. I will note that Bill Barr, who was Donald Trump's attorney general, released a phonied up version of that report to try to exonerate Trump. So we know that people who were Trump loyalists like Bill Barr did try to muddy up the Mueller report because they knew that it was damning for him. So would it surprise you if someone besides Barr, who did this as the official in charge of our of, of the Justice Department, would it shock you if the chief of staff participated in the same thing? It wouldn't shock me. But again, it would be incredibly poor judgment for Mark Meadows to, to hold on to this uh, binder full of very sensitive intelligence and then try to use it for political purposes instead of returning it back to the National Archives or uh, other parts of the White House. So the fact that this physical binder is missing, that's problematic. Uh, on the, the good news side of the story is that the the, the digital copy, copies of those individual intelligence reports are all stored with the, the agencies that published uh, those uh, reports in the first place. But still, you don't want to have that volume of physical documents, apparently you know, what, 10 inches thick, just floating around Washington, D.C. somewhere and not having it be returned to the rightful place. And again, if someone is trying to hold on to it, whether it's Mark Meadows or anyone else yeah. for political purposes, that's not good either. So this needs to this is just another layer of this classified document saga that needs to be unpacked and resolved hopefully soon. Yeah, somebody tell uh, Judge Aileen Cannon. Last uh, word here. What kinds of information would be in a document like this and who might it threaten to have it out? Well, one would think that this uh, binder had uh, individual reports of human intelligence, signals intelligence, other kinds of sensitive intelligence that collectively uh, built the analytic picture that talked about the Russian campaign in 2016 that, as you mentioned, had an election influence um, strand to it and an election interference strand to it as well. And so uh, those, that's the type of uh, intelligence I would suspect that's in the binder. Yeah. But where that is now is is the $64,000. Is anybody's guess. Uh, Javed Ali, thank you very much for your expertise. And coming up, another tragic development in Gaza as Israeli forces mistakenly kill three Israeli hostages after they were either released or abandoned by Hamas. That and much more when we come back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Israel's bombardment of Gaza continues, with the region experiencing a second day of telecom outages and Palestinian officials saying dozens of civilians were killed overnight. The death toll today tragically includes three Israeli hostages, which an Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson says were mistakenly identified as a threat by soldiers, noting that they had either fled or were abandoned by Hamas.
Today, after meeting with officials in Israel, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan stressed that the U.S. wanted to see results on avoiding civilian casualties. As NBC News reports that nearly half the bombs dropped on Gaza are less precise dumb bombs. The political divide between the U.S. and Israel is becoming more pronounced, with Israel's heritage minister saying Gaza needs to be, quote, fully conquered, and Israel's president rejecting discussion of a two-state solution ahead of that meeting with Sullivan. But in a small win for American diplomacy, Israel today agreed to open the Karim Shalom border crossing that leads into Israel for direct delivery of humanitarian assistance, something President Biden had brought up directly to the Israeli prime minister. Since up to now, what aid did come in had to go through the crossing with Egypt. It is the first time since the war began that aid will cross into Gaza directly from Israel. And joining me now is Johnny Serepto, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, president and CEO of Save the Children U.S. And please let me start by asking, did I pronounce your name correctly? It was good enough, Joyce. Good. Right there. I appreciate that. You're very kind. Um, you were one of the co-authors of a really powerful op-ed in the New York Times um, with other aid organizations. The title was, We Are No Strangers to Human Suffering, But We've Seen Nothing Like the Siege of Gaza. We can, And this is a quote from it. We can do nothing remotely adequate to address the level of suffering there without an immediate and complete ceasefire and an end to the siege. The aerial bombardments have rendered our jobs impossible. Number one, please describe some of, of what is happening in Gaza and how what your aid workers are experiencing. And does that second crossing change anything? Thank you, Joy. Look, what our colleagues experience there is almost indescribable. Um, the complete destruction of infrastructure, of hospitals in particular, of homes, of schools, our colleagues and all the other Palestinian you know, civilian population is fleeing uh, further south. They're essentially being chased down uh, the whole strip until there's very, there's nothing left, there's nowhere left to go, essentially, because people can't leave. Um, children are dying. We, we are looking at almost 8,000 deaths now over the last two months. Uh, it's an incredibly high death toll. And people and children are dying terrible, terrible deaths. They die from their wounds. They die from shelling. They will die soon of hunger and waterborne diseases. Um, it is really indescribable. And, you know, the, the, you know, I did speak with Mark Regev, who is a spokesperson for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and uh, he said that, you know, they're doing their best to avoid civilian casualties and that they couldn't go in and do a precise operation the way they would do if this were on Israeli territory because they don't control the ground. But if you could clarify, Israeli officials did say they were going to turn off the water, turn off the food and turn off the fuel. So don't they control the ground? Aren't they in complete control of Gaza? Isn't it still per the UN and occupied territory? It, it, it is. And I think you know, just turning off basic necessities, as, as you said, electricity, food, water, telecommunications, that is withholding aid uh, to civilian population. Um, so it is what is happening there is unconscionable. It is also unnecessary, we think. Um, and that's why we've been calling for an immediate ceasefire for weeks now.
And I will note that, you know, the the time that hostages were released, if if that is the primary goal to get get hostages out, the hostages Mm. that were released were released during the pause. That is when not only could people breathe and maybe get some food and get some aid, hostages were actually released. We now know that at least uh, two or three hostages were killed by Israeli defense forces who shot at them as they ran, thinking that they were a threat. Uh, And my presumption is if, if the people of Gaza can't eat and don't have any clean water, that goes for the hostages as well, right? The Red Cross can't come in and visit them because they are under constant bombardment. Isn't it the case that the hostages now are living the lives of Gazans? Well, one would assume, right? And, you know, we can't confirm uh, the situation of the hostages, but you're absolutely right. The Red Cross can't come in. Nobody can do their jobs, actually. And that is probably one of the most harrowing things for humanitarians, because we would know what to do if there was a, an end to the violence. And as you say, during the humanitarian pause, which now seems like a lifetime ago, but those seven days, although it wasn't enough, and of course not enough came in, and it's not a long time, but things were possible. We could deliver aid. We could deliver food and water to the civilian population. We could even start to do small things with children to take their minds off it, to start to do some some light recreational stuff with kids, to have them play, to be children. Um, but that, of course, all went away when the when the violence erupted again. And you talk about children. I mean, the, the UN Secretary General has described this as a war on children. We know that of the 18,700 uh, that we confirmed dead, 70 percent of them have been children and women. Uh, Twelve Of the 1,200 dead in Israel on uh, 10-7, um, I think 36 were children. 36 of, of them were children on October 7. Um, and we know there are still 132 people that are uh, held hostage in Gaza, um, 80 percent of Palestinians in Gaza have been displaced of the two million and 50 percent are estimated to be starving. If this doesn't end, you know, what is your worst case scenario for what happens? Because, as you said, these are people who cannot leave. Yeah, so it's it's sometimes hard to envision how it could be worse than what we're seeing now, um, really. And there is there is nowhere to go. So the second wave of uh, essentially secondary deaths will come at the hand of hunger, starvation, and water, waterborne and any other infectious diseases. And we're already seeing it. We're seeing, the hospitals are saying that as, as well. They see children in particular uh, and people present with rashes, with acute watery diarrhea, with infections that they can't treat because there are no medicines. Um, one of the one of our colleagues told us that hospitals are actually now presented with more dead bodies than live ones, which was particularly harrowing statistics, frankly. Um, but but that is what we will see. We'll see a second wave of deaths because of those concomitant uh, causes. And we really don't know what else to say other than this, the fighting needs to stop. And, you know, you, you talk about hospitals. At this point, how many hospitals, if you know, are even functioning in Gaza? Uh, last I've heard from certainly from colleagues of MSF and others and the WHO is that less than a third, of, I mean, 11, I think, of the original 36 hospitals are still, well, functioning to some extent, right. certainly not at full capacity, uh, lack of fuel, the generators can't work, the incubators can't work, it is well documented, there, there isn't enough um, medicine or drugs to treat people. People are being operated on uh, simultaneously in the same room. We have four or five people sharing a bed. There's people on the floor. Um, I heard the story yesterday from a colleague that a doctor was literally hit by uh, by 
um, by bullets as he was at a patient's bedside. So they, you know, even the ones that are operating and are able to take people in, uh, it's it's really no place for for the sick or wounded to be to be treated well. It is a harrowing uh, story that is happening right before our eyes uh, and the world watches. Uh, John T. Saripto, thank you so much um, for the op-ed that you participated in writing and for being here this evening. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, who on the week is still ahead. But first, I will be joined by The Roots' lead MC, Tariq Black Thought Trotter, to talk hip-hop, politics, and his powerful new book, The, Un- the Upcycled Self. Stay with us. As I'm sure you know, this is the 50th anniversary of hip hop. The anniversary pays homage to the power and prestige of this musical genre that is a uniquely American juggernaut. The fibers that weave together the beautiful tapestry of American hip hop include a coterie of incredible lyricists. None embody that brilliance more than the front man of the roots, Tariq Trotter, also known by his nom de plume, Black Thought. Yeah, all I wanted was to be more poppin' and to see more profit. What's the detour options? Hey, I feel like Philip Seymour hoppin' less than Zell Washington when people are watching me. If the right amount of likes and follows could make me less hollow, I'll somehow be more complete. You see, I don't lie, right? While some of you may know his music, you may not be as familiar with his personal story. You can now find out all about it if you pick up a copy of his new memoir. The New York Times best-selling The Upcycled Self. His book details a raw, harrowing, and hopeful journey of, Phil- of a Philly native who overcomes personal trauma to blossom into pioneering musician inspired by the art and artistry in and around him. And Tariq Black Thought Trotter joins me now. Congratulations, New York Times bestseller. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, God is good. Look, I, you know, it, your your story is, it's really powerful. It's really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and what caused you to open up and tell, you know, really difficult truths about your family, about your mom mm-hmm. dealing with drug addiction, about you being a young, you know, a kid having to sort of grow up quick in that, in that. What made you do that? Um, I feel like now, Joy, uh, you know, more than ever. Um, the world sort of needs those stories. They need real life, you yeah. know, account of, um, you know, overcoming an obstacle. You know what I mean? And I think there's so much, um, in my story, you know, along the way that I've been faced with and I've had to overcome. So yeah, if that's, if I'm able to give someone, you know, anything to latch on to yeah. in my story, then I feel like the book has served its purpose. And, uh, yeah, like now, now more than ever, if not now, then, you know, when, you For know real. what I mean? Sort of thing. And, you know, so your, your story starts with a fire and you, that yeah. you dealt with as a young child. Tell a little bit of that story. Don't give everything because people need to read the book. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I dealt with a fire as a young child at the age of six. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a traumatic experience for me. It was one of my earliest memories of, uh, you know, that level of, of trauma, um, though it wasn't my first. And, um, it was, uh, you know, a watershed sort of milestone moment for me, um, in my development in that it was, uh, you know, 
a very tangible, something that I could taste and feel uh, was the end of an era. It was a loss of um, of a certain sense of security and of uh, really of innocence. And I was, yeah. you know, six years old. So. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm old school. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an OG uh, hip hop fan. I grew up, you know, I was in the Daisy Age in, yeah, in college, yeah. right? That's That was just sort of my, my era. And and at the time, in that era, I feel like it was it was all about lyricists. Yeah. It was all about lyricists. Hip hop is less about that now. Mm-hmm. It's more about beats. It's more about, you know, the, the tracks. And sometimes the lyrics are not strong. Right. Yeah. And I feel like this is such an era when, I wish we had a PE. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, I, we, we had that in, in in this sort of my era where we had people yeah. who were actually speaking to what is happening in the world. Absolutely. And you why know, do you think there's so little of that now? Um, I don't know. I think we took it for granted. You know, what I mean, we didn't realize what we had or the value of what we had when we had it, and it was a sort of thing that you know, I don't know, maybe because hip hop was sort of founded in this you know winner takes all, larger than life you know mentality. Um, you know, maybe we felt like it was something that would always be there. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I mean, you know, maybe also, I mean, hip hop has expanded, you know, such in such leaps and bounds that it's become the all encompassing like hip hop is for all intents and purposes, pop culture and everything, you know, everything, you know, in between. Right. So, um, this may be the same level of, of lyricism. Right. But there's just so much, so many other nooks and crannies, you know, within the genre, so many yeah. sub genres. And I think this space for, you know, for everything to sort of coexist, even though I don't understand everything, everything is not for me. Yeah. Um, but I think back to, you know, when the roots began, when I was 18 and 19, I wasn't making music for people my age now either, right? right? right, when, right. when we were in the daisy age, we yeah. people who were 40 and 50 wasn't listening to what we were listening to. That's true. Very true. And I know yeah. that Andre 3000 said, you know, he put out a flute album. He exactly. said, I ain't got nothing to say. Exactly. And I don't have too much to say yeah. at this point. I really want to just play the flute. Uh, you know, yeah. what, what do you want people to learn um, from this book? Because this, the, in this book, they're going to learn about your pain. They're going to yeah. learn about how you developed your voice mm-hmm. and how you became Black Thought. Yeah. What do you want them to take from it? I would love for people to take, you know, away to walk away from 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 this 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 book with an understanding of the saving grace, like the salvation that lies in the arts and arts education. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And really just providing, you know, you say if it's not art, just anything like providing your you, your children, your young people with an outlet. Yeah. You know what I'm saying with an opportunity to, uh, you know, yeah. to sort of gaze beyond the block, beyond, you know, over over the fence, you know, yeah. what I'm saying? outside of the hood. Those little glimpses are, uh, you know, what what lit the fire within me. I have to I have to talk a little politics. I can't have you not talk yeah. about politics. The White House recently invited a group of uh, black men to come and try to talk through the sort of back, you know, black men sort of pulling away from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of hip hop artists that are, you know, that are MAGA. Yeah. Uh, some of it breaks my heart. Uh, but what do you think is happening with black men right now in this country that it feels like some of the kind of old school sort of big D Democratic values are not speaking to them anymore? What should give, give folks some advice? Um, I mean, I think people feel, you know, underserved, unrepresented. Um, you know, folks don't feel I mean, who is the voice you know, for black men? Where you know, where do we see ourselves um, in anything, you know, other than a negative light? Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think yeah, I think that's 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 a huge part of it. Well, I'll tell you one place that we see uh, black men in a, in a light that is not negative in the upcycle self. In this book, you present a full black man and a story that is holistic it's brilliant and you're brilliant thank you one of thank the greatest so lyricists look i got to talk to one of the greatest lyricists in the game ever in history i love my job all right and Tariq is not going anywhere because you know what's coming up after the break we are going to play who won the week with this brother right here don't miss it thank you 
Y'all, we made it to the end of another week, thank God, which means it is time to play our favorite game. You know what it is. Who won the week? Back with me is Tariq Black Thought Trotter. Black Thought, who won the week? Um, in my opinion, I think it's a toss-up. It's, uh, it's the band Salt. Are you familiar with Salt? No. S-A-U-L-T. It's a band from UK um, who has created, you know, much mythology and legend around their brand. Yeah. They've never, uh, you know, they rarely do credits. They don't do any photos. They don't do any concerts. They okay. did their first show in London um, oh, last nice. night, if I'm not mistaken. And it okay. was uh, it was stellar from all accounts. So okay. I'm going to say they won the week just for continuing to elevate, you know, music to yeah. Uh, high art yeah. and um, immersive art. And, you know, just continuing to serve as that sort of intersection. Right. And I, I applaud them for, uh, you know, just for their steadfastness in, yeah. in their branding, not willing to compromise and for their activism. So I love it. I love yeah. it. And well, I, I, who won the week for me is freedom. I just have a funny video to show y'all this Bull. I know. I know. Don't judge me. He escaped from a slaughterhouse and he went on the run <laughs> through the tracks of a, through the train tracks in New Jersey. Do you have him running? Can y'all show him running, please? There he is. He, no, y'all show him running. Anyway, wow. there he is. He literally escaped from a slaughterhouse and earned his freedom. He has been relocated to a wonderful pasture where he can now live a free life. The fugitive bull. I, I, I wish I had more time to ask what the upcycled self is, but for an animal, that is the upcycled self. Yeah, y'all. That's that what I'm it. declaring. Uh, Tariq Black Thought Trotter, thank you very much. You won the week. Thank you seller. so much. And that is tonight's readout. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.